Welcome to the Exponential Podcast. My name is Peyton Jones, and as Exponential's content director, I'll be your guide to the curation of the world's largest multiplication library of resources and training. We currently have four shows running Monday through Thursday, each with a different thrust towards accelerating multiplication. On Monday, join us for front lines tackling current issues facing pastors and planners. On Tuesday, tune in for Biblically Speaking, Theological Foundations for Transformative Race Conversations. On Wednesdays, Ralph Moorhead's Practical Multiplication, A Pastor's Guide to Accelerating Multiplication. And lastly, Candid Conversations is on Thursday, Unpacking Definitions of Diversity. Be sure to catch them all as they will serve as equipping companions on your discipleship journey towards multiplication. Today, join me and Daniel Yang on Frontlines. The Frontline program seeks to encourage and equip pastors and planners to better understand and navigate the current and future trends in church ministry. Each episode invites thought leaders and advanced practitioners in ministry to inform and inspire pastors and planners as they continue what they do on the field. Welcome, Exponential. We are here on the Frontlines podcast, and my name is Peyton Jones, and uh, you don't need to know much about me, and I'm here with my excellent co-host, Daniel Yang. Yo, yo. Hey, man. Good seeing you again. I am glad to see that you uh, have still kept your shed or the space that you're in in mint condition. It looks untouched. It has been untouched. The uh, project grinds slowly but surely, like the machinations of God. And uh, there you go. only only we, you would you would you would use that term in a podcast. <laughs> you know, I I think I used a term last week. I saw your eyebrow raise. Like, did he just say that? And yeah. So, uh, it, true to form, we're going to try not to suck today. That was our exhortation to one another before this. But we are here. We're excited. We're going to get all uh, up to all kinds of trouble because you see who our guest is. We got Hugh Stinkenhalter on here. And, uh, <laughs> Daniel Yo-Yo Yellow Backdrop Yang. That's right. Hey, that's a nice hip-hop stage name. I like it. That was. What kind of mood are you in? What kind of mood would yellow be for Daniel? Like, if that's really the color he hangs in all day long. That's kind of a joyous spring kind of feeling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm picking up that vibe. Not like a but, COVID yellow. Yeah. Better than a puke yellow. Yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it makes me kind of, uh, it, it calms me. It calms me. Um, makes me feel like I have a professional on here. It's good because, I mean, look, look, look what's happening over here. I got Somebody my t-shirt on. I got my, that, there, there's nothing running well here. But, uh, but then we got Hugh, and Hugh, you are, I, I would say, I, I know that part of your hobbies is interior decorating because I'm looking at your background and I can see, you know, your, uh, your painting I'm, background. I'm actually at my wife's desk in the uh, office, uh, overlooking the uh, backyard. Usually the pool is full of children, grandchildren. Today it's quiet. It's nice. Oh, that is a nice space. Very they nice. always come over during a webinar. It's and just to, they come up to find me. And so I think today we're safe. Yeah. Yeah. That happens to me too. Everything. The gardener comes. I mean, you know, the, the dogs go nuts, everything happens. But hey, we're on here today with you, Hugh, because uh, you have, um, I'm going to have you tell your story. But I mean, you, you know, you've written a number of books, right? Tangible Kingdom. And what I consider your two best books, um, Happy Hour 
fantastic. Yep. Your, your smallest books, and I'm not saying you should write less. I'm just saying those, that the book Happy Hour, if you have not gotten that book, go get that book. It's amazing. It's all about how to, how to basically throw the party in the neighborhood, be the person of peace. It's more like and a the, pamphlet. It's not even a book. It's, it's literally like what you'd find on the floor at a dentist's office. But I do think it's my best theological work ever. So it's fantastic, and also he wrote it. He wrote it, he wrote it at a at a happy hour. That's that's. <laughs> I wrote it while at the dentist. Yeah, and, you know, threw it on the ground. Anyway. Hey, and and the other one is Bivo, which um, really was, I, I think that book raised, it's not that people weren't Bivo. I mean, I was Bivo, but I hadn't really thought of that as a, as a you know, we called it tent making in, 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 in ministerial circles. But that book right there, that book was powerful. And you came up with some key principles I think we'll unpack a little bit today. But um, you've also been doing something pretty radical in Alton. You probably told this story a million times, but for those that don't kind of know your journey, um, just unpack with us a little bit how you got from Hugh Halter, painter extraordinaire, to Hugh Halter, Alton, Illinois. Well, the painter thing um, started in college, Peyton. That was like the, uh, I was trying to figure out how to pay for college. I was at a private, you know, institution on a partial athletic scholarship and just couldn't pay the bills. So I went down and asked a guy to teach me how to paint a house professionally. And so that, that kind of became the trade. It was the trade I fell back on uh, while going through seminary. And I met my wife and uh, adopted her son, Ryan, who was almost five. And so we were, uh, I think probably six months later, we were in a brain surgery up at UW Medical Center. It was taking all of our money, like literally all of it, heading to bankruptcy. And so house painting became kind of the survival. I actually had to leave seminary and uh, felt like my calling to ministry was literally, I mean, I was like back in those days, if you were Bivo, it just meant you sucked at everything. You sucked at church and you sucked at business. And so I literally thought, man, why isn't God healing my son or, or making it easier to enter the ministry and uh, forced us, into the labor field and that ended up being how we planted our first church and uh, eventually you know the tangible kingdom story was when we moved out to denver and again that was you know we were uh, in fact bible was really the financial story behind the tangible kingdom we didn't really bring up the money part we were talking about church as a network of missionary communities right um and then bible became um, in fact, it came out of Expo. A lot of people at Expo were going, hey, by the way, I love the Tangible Kingdom ideas, but like, how do you pay the bills? And so enough people were asking about sustainability issues and, and whatnot that I wrote Bivo um, as not a sucking at two things, but maybe that's how God's going to position you in the world and force you to build out church as a team of friends that all use their gifting. And so, you know, that sort of, I would say, even the painting out of the suffering of my son's disability formed all the philosophy and theology of church as a free venture that uh, you can actually do this without any money. And so now that we've hit COVID all of a sudden, you know, March 15, 90% of the churches in America on one day stopped meeting and everybody went, Holy bat bullets. What, you know, so just now, you know, um, almost a year into this thing is what it feels like 
now we're starting to realize, oh, this may not go back to normal. And so everything's up in the air now. And specifically, if you've been in paid vocational ministry, there's not a pastor out there that is not trying to figure out how am I going to actually sustain my, my mission. Um, and so I, th- I feel like it's a great time to talk about it. But that was really the story, Peyton. And then, um, you know, my son's disability got us out to this little town in Alton. Um, Ryan was 31. He just passed away about three, three and a half weeks ago. But his disability um, got us out here. We left Denver and uh, everything we knew there and came out here. Not really for him. We knew that he would probably not make it much longer, but um, we really felt like his disability guided our mission all these years. So all of a sudden we're in this town that is not as cool as Denver. Um, It's a town that had lost about two thirds of all of its industry. So uh, right on the Mississippi river, just 20 minutes North of St. Louis. And uh, my wife actually, before I caught the bug, she said, you know, let's, let's just move there. See if we can do something to help that town. So it became kind of a, family mission. My two daughters and their husbands came with us. We just did a a full immersion, like let's just move there and see if we could actually do something for the, we weren't thinking about planting a church. We were thinking about the town. And um, and so we just prayed for a while, you know, looked around, tried to maybe uh, tried to buy a few little buildings to start little coffee shops. There was like no coffee (laughs) for a 30,000 person little town. And, uh, so we tried that. That didn't work. And then I just kind of went quiet for a little bit, prayed. And all of a sudden, the guy gave me, kind of donated an old federal post office to us and just said, I think you're going to know what to do to help our town. Um, and so we got the family in there and we just started to go, okay, let's just really assume that the Lord does send people. that he And he sends us to actual places where he knows, you know, what the, you know, kind of the points of pain are in a city. Um, what would he plant? Like if we, if we didn't just go into places as a church planter, if we really went in there with the Trinity, you know, leading the way, and if they got to pick what we would do, you know, what if they did say, well, why don't we give them the, one of the largest buildings in the center of town right next to city hall that's been boarded up for 60 years. They used to be where everybody went to get their mail. It's a town, 40% African-American rest white, very, very poor. You know, we're just a few knocks uh, north, about 10 minute drive from Ferguson. You know, we're in the same racial mess that uh, a lot of the, the towns are in our country right now. So what if the Holy Spirit really went, hey, why don't you do this? What he's trying to do in towns is to do much more than just plant a teaching service or a worship center. But mm-hmm. what if he's trying to prosper his righteous ones so that Someday the whole city might rejoice or at least say, hey, thanks for coming, or we're really glad that you're here, or we would be devastated if you guys left. What if, what if the mayors and the towns that we went into said, please don't go because we'll have to raise the taxes to handle all that your ecosystem is doing for our city? So hmm. uh, that's the idea behind what we call marketplace church planting or um, so you can tell money is still a part of it, right? You still, it still takes money, but what if the church part of what we do doesn't cost a dime? I mean, let's just talk about that for a minute. So if we can say church is free, then that means the consolidation of all of our funds 
and the consolidation of all of our creativity can actually go into doing things for the cities that we live in that would maybe be really good news to people. So hmm. um, do you mind if I just talk a little bit about church as a free venture? And then uh, we'll kind no, of... Maybe, you know, so any thoughts? Open you would. Yeah, that's great. Hey, before you jump into that, Hugh, yeah. um, I, I don't want to gloss over it quickly. I, Man, I just want to be um, sensitive to the fact that you did lose your son uh, three weeks ago, and, and and God did use that as a way, you know, I, I know you said it wasn't the only reason why you moved out to Alton, but I want to honor your son's life and legacy, and I know it's still kind of raw. I'm not going to ask you to unpack, you know, how your family's doing, but I just want to, man, we want to give our condolences to you and your family. And I appreciate it, man. Just, I can't imagine. I, I, I don't mind talking about it because it's um... – you know, I'm 53, almost 54, Daniel, and, and I've changed a lot as I've gotten older. People actually say I'm nicer now. Um, but the other thing is just you start to realize that, especially as, as a planter, um, you know, now I tell young planters, you don't have to work as hard as you think you, you needed to. Um, mm -hmm. you know, the early life as a planter, you're just working your ass off, right? <laughs> Mm -hmm. And you're trying to throw as much mud against the wall as you can, see what sticks. As you get older, you start to really trust, or it's easier to just bank on the fact that God knows what he's doing, that you, you let him bring stuff to you, you let him reveal stuff, and you just kind of respond. But um, Ryan's life in our life is what changed me. I would have been a completely different type of a leader, different type of a person, um, we would have never wrote the tangible kingdom had it not been for the fact that we couldn't leave our house. So we had to learn how to do neighborhood mission because we couldn't leave the neighborhood. So, and then all the way to, you know, now I'm doing mostly marketplace consulting and church planting consulting, you know, that's all because of Ryan's uh, issue of suffering. So for those planters or pastors out there that are lamenting, the straight jackets that you have around you it could be a, a child's disability. It could be financial restraints, whatever you feel like is constraining you. Someday you might realize it's how God actually um, revealed his way to you. So, um, you know, try not to complain as much as I did on the early days, but uh, um, yeah, I mean, would I choose to live in Alton? No, I'd rather be in uh, Kona, um, Denver, <laughs> but I, the Lord sends us to places, right? You know, yeah. like there's specific people and there's specific things that we do. Not like this town needed us. I had, in fact, the longer I'm here, the more I realize how many amazing people have been here way before. But there's certain things that, you know, God gifts us to do. I'm more of a catalyst. And we were probably helpful early on, you know, in a, in a catalytic mode, um, but this town has amazing activists and there's people that love the poor. There's people that love the racial tension. And, um, but yeah, as uh, for such a time as this, so wherever your listeners are, there are reasons why we live in the cities that we live in and the towns that we're called to. I do think the gospel angles us to the poor. I think, um, you know, it's not like he's going to abandon the suburbs. Um, in fact, suburbs are sometimes where the poor people have to go now because they can't afford the city. But mm -hmm. no matter what God's doing, he is always going to angle towards uh, where the difficulty is. And so I, I think for the in the planting world, the more you try to avoid uh, not the suburbs, but the suburban mentality, I think the, the faster you're going to find fruit in the basket. If you go looking for towns, in fact, I, I hope 
someday to reveal the thousand or the most, a thousand, our best thousand suckiest towns. Like go here. Cause you, if you will start something, some enterprise in these towns, uh, it'll be way bigger bang for the buck. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You no, know, we used to always plant where the growth was, right? The suburban growth where the money was going to be. And, and now we're tasting what that has delivered for us. Um, where we've had our brothers and sisters for many, many years have lived in the inner cities and in the tough towns, slugging it away. And I really think that is probably, uh, I don't know. I just think it's going to be easier to find the kingdom in these uh, struggling spots. So yeah, for thanks, thanks for that, man. Hey, before we, uh, before you unpack, you know, uh, what's happening in Alton, the posts, uh, I, I've been with you, man, you, you've been, uh, was, you were an awesome host. My wife and I came out and spent a day with you. And so thanks for that. It's just so many things were stirred up, stirred up inside of me. And so I want to make sure that, uh, you can unpack some of those things, uh, that we got to see and experience, um, with you. But before we jump into that, man, can you, can you just help us think through like what's church for you? in your mind when we say church, because, you know, I, I'm afraid that sometimes we say, you know, church for free or something like that. Uh, uh, people are thinking, you know, all, all kinds of things. I, I want, I want people to at least have a better understanding of where you're coming from when you're saying church, what's your ecclesiology. Yeah, I, w- I will tell you this. Um, I get asked that all the time. They'll go, you know, they'll see what we're doing locally with the businesses or uh, you know, some social entrepreneurship that might be kind of, starting to show some signs of life and they'll, they'll go, do you go to church? And I always say this whole thing, this whole thing is our church. And I define church as for, at least for me, more of like what we call a kingdom ecosystem is that we plant good works and we plant people, we plant neighborhood communities. Um, and then God does build his church. I actually do believe that the localized expression that we see on Sunday, that a good chunk of that is, part of God's church, but some of it isn't right. There's, he tells us whenever you get a big room full of people, there's wheat and there's tares and don't try to worry about it. But I still believe that a church has to have, at least biblically speaking, it has to be an intentional community around the gospel that is trying to bear witness to God's glory in a given area. So, but that doesn't have to look like a Sunday gathering. Uh, We don't have a Sunday gathering. Um, In fact, in the tangible kingdom story, we didn't have a, sort of a all church Sunday gathering for about three and a half years. Um, But it does have to have people that are committed to the same intentional mission. They're committed to Jesus. They're committed to community. They're committed to um, what you might call ecclesial rhythms, whatever that looks like. Um, So, you know, right now, just so listeners know, we've been, you know, in Alton about five years. The business took us about a year and a half to build out. We opened up our doors about three years ago. So, you know, functionally, we're, we feel like we've really been sort of, uh, I guess, working the harvest field for about three and a half years. And there's about 45 people that are in what we would call a missionary community together. Uh, we meet intentionally all the time. We take care of each other. We share all of our stuff. A lot of them work in our, uh, in our businesses. Um, we have technically two neighborhood communities. We've got four businesses. Um, so it's, you know, it's very small, just kind of getting off the ground, but, um, in there, there are, uh, all those things you would think of in church, Daniel, there are intentional discipleship communities, uh, intentional conversations every week. Um, during COVID we were meeting via zoom, uh, most Sunday mornings, 
And uh, that was that kind of that inner 40 or so. Uh, but then within our, our different neighborhood communities, probably if, if your people were trying to get a, a, an idea of what we're kind of messing with, it feels like there's about 70 people that we kind of guide spiritually. Um, and some of those are very intentional. They came here to be on mission with us. Uh, some of those are people we just met in the coffee shop that began to move towards Jesus and whatever. So, you know, I feel like we're, as, as I try to paint church as a free market venture, I actually tell people to shoot for 40 to 120. I, I feel like that's a size that you can do really easy without it, without a dime. Um, and it can be, you know, as we'll talk about more of a network of friends, but we, we talk every week about, okay, what are we doing, uh, to, to gather this weekend. Um, we did, you know, when the, when the building was open we could get everybody in the building, we had what was called a side door community. And that was our kind of missionary core. And we met, it seemed like we met every two or three weeks. Um, but we call it the side door cause we said, we're never going to probably do a public front door, like come into our building. We felt like that would have actually been a bad play. People respected us because of our business. We did not want, uh, even the local pastors or the people to think we had bait and switched them. And so we could start a church in our building. Um, we actually said if we ever needed to gather more people, we would probably worship in another space because we wanted our building to be perceived to be a neutral, you know, sort of site. So, but we would use it for a missionary training to come together to pray over what was going on. So that was the side door community. You had to sneak in, you know, side door, um, but that's, you know, I don't know if that helps Daniel, but, um, you know, it's, it's still all a tangible kingdom. It's, it would be building out a network of missionary communities and neighborhoods um, or communities that flourish out of the businesses. Uh, so our personal missional community is called the Abbey, and that ended up being a cross-section of our CrossFit friends and people that came into the coffee shop. We have another uh, house that ended up being what we call a recovery house, um, it was donated to us in a, in a pretty rough part of town, and that's led by a family that um, just unbelievable missionaries. Um, and I, I feel like they've changed their entire neighborhood in being there one year. And so we have, you know, technically those two houses and one other house called the, the Liberty Union House. So there's three missional communities that are neighborhood-based, um, and then we use the businesses to build out the relational base of what we're doing and, the, and how we're blessing the city, providing jobs, that type of thing. That's really, uh, that's really good, Hugh. I mean, uh, when I was there with you, um, boy, I guess it's been a little bit over a year now. Uh, you had just really opened and launched the business. Uh, and you were thinking about, at, at least at the time, incubating other businesses, like a barbershop, those kinds of things. Can you talk about how the businesses feed into the spiritual community? How does that all relate to each other? Because I think that may be key to helping people to understand, uh, a, you know, a more uh, multiple stream of income, you know, without being able to say it in any other way uh, for, uh, you know, the, the kingdom ecosystem that you're building. So yep. talk about how the businesses relate to the spiritual community. Yeah. Is Peyton awake still, by the way? <laughs> I'm right here, man. I'm here. I'm listening. Checking. Um, I'll, I'll jump back in in a second. Don't you wait. Oh, sorry. You won't shut me up in a minute. Shouldn't have got you talking. Um, so Daniel, historical answer to your question is, 
the enterprise aspect has been around for hundreds of years, um, thousands. Uh, sometimes when people ask what we're doing, I say we're like a neo-trappist work. Um, remember St. Benedict, sixth century, um, every monastic order was begging for money. He was begging for, you know, on the street corner or whatever, give us money, asking the people for money, except for the Benedictines, the Trappists. And their motto was Ora et Labora. So the prayer was the work, the work was the prayer. They were really, St. Benedict might have been the first one to say there's no distinction between the sacred and secular. Um, and so the, you know, the Trappists, uh, I think Rodney Stark said it was the, uh, some of these monastic communities of the 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th centuries that literally funded the gospel expansion. They owned a third of England during the time of the Reformation. Um, and so they were cloistered communities, so they had very intentional life together. But they would not leave town. They would go to the main street and go, okay, what's this town need? And so that's why we got the Trappist beer joints, you know, out in the suburbs right now, is that the Trappists would generally go to places where maybe the water wasn't safe. So they would brew beer, then they take the spent mash and they make bread for everybody. And then pretty soon everybody's hanging out at their spots. So they become, you know, the hospitality centers, the early hotels. And that was their evangelistic strategy that was they wanted people to come to them for the stuff that they needed so when when we talk about marketplace planting or building ecosystems that include both missionary communities and businesses some of that is for sustainability of the missionaries so we support uh seven of our missionaries just you know people that you would normally have join your church we support them because they work in our businesses um, but that also gives us some revenue. If we want to help somebody that's not a Christian start another business, we can do that. You know, there's a, a baker that, that found out about us and, you know, she had struggled a lot with drug addiction, had been clean for six years and just wanted to be a baker. And so we said, how can we help you? She's like, well, I need, I need a commercial kitchen and I could use some, some marketing. And so we said, yeah, why don't you just fill up our bakery stuff? every day and uh, we'll let our, you know, our 7,000 local um, friends on Facebook know about you and can use our kitchen. And, you know, she initially, she was an atheist and she, she goes, I Googled you. I said, what did you find? She goes, well, I found out you're a Christian. I said, well, is that going to be a problem? And she says, probably based on the Christians I've hung out with. Yeah. I, I don't know if this is going to work. So I, I said, well, why don't you just, worry about baking and try not to worry about my Jesus saying, let's just see how we get along. And um, we initially took 20% of our profits. They were super happy about that. And then we, uh, a month later, we said, uh, we, we want to meet with you and redo our business relationship. And she was very defensive. And we just said, we just like, we were actually praying because that's what we do. And we felt like we're not loving you as good as we could. And, we just said, could we just take 10% of your profits? We just want to help you. She did not know why we would do that for her. And, we, you know, I joke with her. I say, hey, remember that Jesus stuff? This is actually us trying to really uh, relate to the world and to people the way he would. And so if you wouldn't mind, just let us. It's actually, I said, it's going to be a struggle. We're not making that much money, but we feel like we want to do this for you. We just want you to do well. And so... Obviously, that opened up a, uh, a journey that's still ongoing with their spirituality, and uh, they love us. We love, In fact, during our Christmas party this last year, um, she was the very first one to stand up 
And she just said, you guys have made me a part of your family. And uh, later on, she told me, I, you know, what we did may, has made it very hard for her not to believe. So she hasn't, you know, crossed any line, but she's moving. So Daniel, the, the business part, it, it just, it ticks a lot of boxes, so to speak. It's sustainable funding. You know, I didn't take any money off of it for three years and now I'm taking, you know, 15 grand a year. So, you know, it's part of, it's one of my eight buckets, right? So there's a little sustainability. Um, it's mostly missionary positioning though, in a city or in a culture. Um, it's a, it's a whole network that most of us, when we are pastoring a church, we just forget that there's a real world going on out there. And so there, there's just so many benefits to it. I don't think, you know, even, you know, most of you know my my gifting and my orientation is evangelism. All I think about is people come to faith. Um, I feel like I'm decently good at it. Like I think it's a gifting, but I could have never got this much movement had we not done a business first. So that's why I go back to the, like, what would Jesus start in your town? And I, I think the Lord knew uh, we got a position, Hugh, his family, and his whole team as a part of the, the business community for them to get the fruit. So um, That's good. Yeah. It's good. You know, the, the more that I look at Paul, right? I mean, you and I have talked before. I've been Bible for 17 years of, of planting, right? Um, and and so this is, this is kind of, you, you get to a point where you start realizing that money is the stupidest reason to bottleneck mission. And I think Paul tapped into, you know, he legitimizes fundraising. He did that and he talks about it. He legitimized taking money from the church because he endorses Timothy to do so. And then he legitimizes working with his hands. And what I've learned over the years is you find people in three different buckets, obviously, you know, they, they'll be like, well, this is the right way. And everybody holds their bucket out. This is the right way to fund mission. And what I notice is people that that actually do it well, like Paul, they tend to fall. They, they almost have like this, all three buckets. Yeah. And like you mentioned, eight things. Um, so it, what does it look like for a planter? Like, okay, you're Hugh Halter. You're speaking to Hugh Halter from 20 years ago. He comes up to you and goes, I got it figured out, man. I got, what are you going to tell the young Hugh Halter? Look, Hugh, if I could start today where you're at now, let me tell you, this is what I would do from day one. What instruction would you give to a church planner starting out today? I build a trade. I develop your trade as much as you develop your theology. So as much time as you put into seminary, Bible school, get a trade that you can take anywhere you want. Did I know back in my early twenties that COVID would hit when I was 53 um, and that I would need to go back to guess what I am now Peyton again, I'm a house painter, (laughs) you know? So uh, my wife was asking me a couple days ago, okay, how are we going to make a living? And I actually said, we got eight buckets, babe, (laughs) you know, Sounds like conversations I have with my wife. I still get a check for like uh, tangible kingdom. I still get a quarterly check for like 112 bucks. So there's some royalties, babe. We got that bucket. That's worth a lot. Um, By the way, that's making it in Christian publishing. You've made it. I know. (laughs) You know, I mean, there's, there's consulting, there's training, there's itinerant speaking, there's a little bit from post commons. There's, um, you know, but now house painting, I think will probably, and I just said, look for about a year, I think we just got to 
quit looking around. I'm not going to get on planes for a while and speak. So I said, I'm getting back. So I, you know, getting all my tools out again, figuring out where all my ladders are around the city, getting stuff back from my son-in-laws. Um, I was out doing two bids yesterday. So I just, I think I would, and that's honestly, it's what's kept me in the game. The goal is not to make a lot of money. Uh, the goal is to just simply sustain your mission, right? That, that should be all of our goals. That's why I think you see Paul at times, like like he did basically say, you can't judge another person on how they make their income off the gospel. Um, and if you make a full salary from a church, there's nothing unbiblical about that. But there's also nothing unbiblical about some guy making half a million a year running a real estate company and and being a part of leading a church community. Um, it just doesn't matter anymore how you get it done, but you got to get it done. And I think opening up, you know, the door from, you know, where it used to be, you're either on pastoral staff or you're not. Um, there was no in between No, There's about a hundred different in-betweens now between that. You might have two buckets, you might have five, you might have one. Um, but you know, I think it's going to be a very rare person that 20, 30 years from now is making a full income, uh, from, you know, working at one church. And I think we have to remember prior to about a hundred years ago, nobody had that as a paradigm. Uh, the gospel got to us primarily through completely unpaid or barely paid or almost stipend leaders, right? They were all working the fields with their sons and then they were helping take the, the leadership of a local congregation, usually very, very small, right? So that's why when you have scriptures that say, you know, give those cats double honors because they were doing double duty. They're, they're working a job like everybody else. And they're adding to that the stress of leading 40, 70 people in most cases historically. So um, can we get back to that? Absolutely. If COVID got 40 times worse and the economy goes in the complete tanker, would the Lord still know how to build his church? No brainer. Would he expect us still a lead? No brainer. Would he still give us his gifts that he's given? Yep. Gifts are still there. Power of the Holy Spirit uh, that raised Jesus from the dead still is operational. And so like the engine is still under the hood and all of that stuff is free. Ephesians four leadership gifting that God's given the body, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher, to equip the saints to do the work. So right there, you have the free market church right there. It's I've given you guys what Matthew 16, I've given you the keys to the kingdom. So when he gives us the keys to the kingdom, he gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us our gifting. He gives us the call to make a disciple. We know it doesn't cost any money to make a disciple. And then he gives us very simple missionary structures, what we might call a missionary community, a house church, uh, a small congregation, you know, those taking care of 40, 70 friends, it just doesn't cost money. It doesn't, you don't have to pay me to preach. You don't have to pay me to grab a guitar and play some music. So um, I would like to submit to the world <laughs> that the Bible is written to an unpaid movement and we have to be okay again and actually start strategizing how to free this church up. It, it just doesn't cost what we think. And if it doesn't cost, then maybe we can take, so, you know, when we got the building, uh, the building was free, right? So somebody gave me the building. We had to raise and put into this building $650,000. So it still takes money, right? But the money 
Um, in fact, I had one church that gave us quite a bit of money, um, and they're a mega church, and they said, uh, so you're telling the world that it doesn't cost any money for church, but we gave you a bunch of money. What's your answer? I said, yeah, it's like we're, we really appreciate your gift to us, but we didn't need a penny of that to go reach somebody. Um, that was all put into the business as our apostolic hub that helps us you know, hold the whole thing together. So money is still needed, but money is not needed to do the functions of church, at least in my mind. Um, money might be needed for building or whatever, but uh, we can get it done for, for way less. And I think that's what God's probably going to, maybe that's why he's not saving the day right now. Maybe, um, maybe this is the biggest transition the church has ever seen. And those of us that can kind of see where the puck is sliding to, and pick out a trade or start learning how to hustle a little bit, I think we're going to have a lot more freedom to stay in the mission field. You know, it's funny because, you know, for most of us that start a ministry um, with a, with a full ride, you know, the equivalent of a scholarship year on staff at a mega church. That's how I started 20 something years ago. A free laptop too, didn't you? Uh, no, they did Laptops weren't cool back then, but I, that would have been rad. I mean, you, you, back in I know my- I don't, the Foursquare denomination, they were giving away free laptops if what? you sign on with them. That's so. That's well, brother, I'll tell you what. I was I was a poor missionary. I had a full ride my first year overseas, 9-11 hit. All charities dropped in half. My mission board said, we can't pay you. And I went to work in a factory. And I'll be doggone if after a year of no fruit at all, doing all the crappy stuff that you do in full-time ministry. And I mean, hardcore, like going out on the street and doing all that. It only took a couple of weeks on the factory floor, man, until I started reaching people and they started coming to faith. And I was like, oh, okay. So I went on from there to become a firefighter, a barista. I mean, you name it, whatever it was. And even when he didn't need the money, I would still go to work if I were a church plant in a community. So it was kind of like, you know, you, you start, you fear when you're on full paid time staff, you fear what would happen if I lost my job. And, and I know every planner that's out there who has a full ride, you fear that. That keeps you awake at night. And yet, you know, here's Hugh. And Hugh's one of many. Like who, you know, w- when you don't have the money, um, you're paying your bills. You got skills to pay the bills. Um, you realize that it's invigorating. And that fear doesn't haunt you anymore. You actually realize that's the best thing that ever happened to me was when I had to go work in the community because I saw the most fruit. My, my mentor used to say it this way. He's, he would say, you reach more people. He'd say to the congregation, you reach more people by Monday lunch than I will as a full-time pastor all, all week, yeah. maybe all month. So I've always said if, you're, if you really take the full-time gig at a existing church, um, my respect is high for you, but you are taking one for the team. You don't have the abilities that a lot of people do out in the culture. So I just think, you know, you got to always say, you know, wherever you take money, it has strings attached to it. If you're working Starbucks, yep, there's strings attached to that, right? You got, if you're taking money from the church or a congregational setting, uh, there's unique strings to that. There's expectations. If, if you take it from like what I do from eight different buckets, there's, there's also a struggle with that. Right. So uh, for you are a veritable you, marionette, you have eight strings attached to you then. It is. Yeah. I like them though, but see, that's, that's why there, there has to be something about your calling yeah. and design. I think you have to grow some muscles for, it. I do enjoy the hustle of it. Um, you brought something up though, Peyton, I think is, is good to mention. I think to, 
this is going to be a lot more people's norm 20 years from now, not just because the church is going to struggle as a business model, you know, getting people to a building and then teaching them how to tie it. That is going to be a harder and harder paradigm, but there's also a switch going on in the discipleship of people where I find that people are, you know, I guess Kinnaman wrote about the donors, right? Uh, the people that have put in their time and have put in their money in the plate for all these years, and they don't see much return on uh, the come to us Sunday service type of church. Um, I think this is an opportunity. I'm finding people all the time that love, oh, they just love the Lord. They love the kingdom. They believe in it, but they are done putting money in the plate because they want to actually help somebody. And this is a benefit is if you will find those people that want to make what we call kingdom investments and start sustainable businesses um, that can then support and turn into church. I think that is going to be a wave of the future. So um, don't give up on fundraising, but to just call people to fund the plate, to keep the pastor and and the lights on, I think that's not a big enough story for people anymore. Um, if we go into places that have two thirds of the, the downtown buildings boarded up and you say, let's put our money into this, let's, let's revive this and start creating some momentum for this town. I think you'll find a lot of money. I never found it this easy to raise money. I could not have done that if I said, I'm going to plant a church because we're planting again, um, an ecosystem. It just, I don't know. It gives people a lot of creativity with their kingdom giving. Hey, Hugh, uh, that's all really, really good stuff. If, a funny thing, somebody dropped in the chat there. They were actually a four-square pastor that got a laptop. <laughs> so, you weren't just making that up. Yep. Uh, Real. We got some questions coming up here. And, hey, uh, feel free. We got another about 20 minutes or so with Hugh. Uh, so feel free to drop uh, your questions there in the chat, and we'll get to as many of them as possible. Hugh, somebody asks, uh, what have you read or what have you done to address nimbyism? You know, the idea of not in my backyard. Uh, and maybe you experienced it from other churches. Maybe you experienced it from other businesses. But yeah. uh, what did you do? What did you experience? Oh, man. Um, I had a pastor walk into the post one day and just go, hey, um, do you have a moment? I'd love to just have a few minutes with you. So we sat down and he said, from the minute you moved into this town, I've hated you. He goes, I've read your books. I've followed you. I was afraid when you came in because I thought you were just going to start a church and gut all of our churches. Um, But he was mostly upset because he asked for the building that we were in years prior to do the same exact thing. And the gentleman that gave me the building didn't give him the building. So he was just very humble and, and said, yeah, I just, you know, I've, I've envied the fact that you got the space. I've been jealous that you made it work. And so he just, you know, we, we've become very close friends. He actually works in our building all the time now. Um, just a very, very dear friend. So, you know, I do think it helped that I come to start a competing church service for sure. Um, but we also, you know, you find even within the business zone, especially in the struggling town, you have to be very careful. I think I made some mistakes early on, um, not intentionally, but I think just success breeds enemies at some level. So people, I think, um, they had the perception that I came in with a lot of personal money and just, you know, the outsider coming in. But I think over time, I think, uh, most of the naysayers have learned our real story and what we did that we brought in, 
donated money um, and that I was as broke as they were. We just worked hard with the money that we were given and created the space. So I do think business will give you a little bit more credibility, a little bit less fights, but not, uh, you know, you still have to be careful and humble not to come in to try to save a town, right? You're just trying to do what you can do. So um, it also helps that now the whole town sees us struggling in business like everybody else, right? So um, it's that common struggle that seems to breed some uh, liminality together um, and create more respect. So, yeah, that's. Have you uh, in, since the since the pandemic? Have you all been able to connect with other businesses? I mean, what 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 kind of resource have you been to the other businesses? Yeah, well, I literally I just drive and walk into other businesses and and I say, how are you guys doing? I mean, we we know almost everybody by name, and so we just you know, I mean, the response has not been to pull together coalition, but literally just walk in and go, how how are you doing this month? Um, so some of them I coach a little bit. Some of them I, um, I get coaching from some of them. We just, uh, say, are you making it? So it's, a, it's kind of a real camaraderie, uh, you know, our town, if we're not having a pandemic, we're having a flood. So Alton floods all the time. So, you know, a lot of our businesses struggle just because of the constant pain in the rear end that the Mississippi is, but, um, yeah, that's kind of how we kind of work together. So when, when you deal in the service industry, you realize the service industry, there's a very you know, powerful biblical imagery of what the service industry is. It's, and when we're having floods or when we're having tornadoes, which we had a few months ago, it's like the, literally the restaurant owners are the ones that take care of the town. <laughs> like even though they're struggling, they just band together and they put food together and they make meals and they, you know, uh, we have a warming center that literally came out of the hearts of many of our restauranteurs to, to keep people off the streets in the middle of winter. So um, there's a lot of things that come from the service industry. They're not just restaurant people. Uh, most restaurant people are city people that love their city. They're like the prophets and they do what they do to create atmosphere and experiences for people that give the town a little bit of a, a breath of fresh air. They literally breathe life into our town. So um, to do a coffee shop or a brunch cafe or whatever it is, I, I just, I've seen it as a very, very high calling. So Hugh, as you've, you're in the, the post commons now, right? That's the building, the old post uh, office right. there in town. How many businesses are running out of that at the moment? Like what's it look like when you walk in? Cause I know you've got like space to do weddings you've got a like a like a bar there what what else going on in the hub yeah well the bar is just there because i like a bar so we, put, <laughs> we uh we have a coffee roastery we have a brunch cafe we've got a normal coffee uh, and tea biz and then we've got the event space um so we're kind of i think we've emerged as one of the premier wedding you know and big gathering event spaces so we always feel like we have three anchor businesses and then, you know, the little bakery is a little bit on the side, right? Um, our basement is built out of shared office space. So that's, you know, we could open that up at whatever point it might end up more as worker space. We can't get the bacon grease smell out of the basement. So we thought it might just be more of like a carpentry spot or something where people are working and don't care about the smell. Um, we've got, my daughter started a commons yoga out of it. So commons yoga is technically its own LLC underneath our nonprofit, um, that obviously uses the space. Um, 
So, you know, that just gives you a little bit of an idea. If, if you want to delve deeper into Kingdom Ecosystem, if uh, some of you might want to look up Common Thread uh, Birmingham, that's a network that's got, I think uh, Taylor and Lindsay McCall helped apostolically lead that. It's about 21 businesses, uh, including a very well-respected coffee program uh, called Seeds Coffee, but they've, uh, they, they literally ask people to move into neighborhoods and figure out what would be the best news in that neighborhood. And so they've started libraries and schools and CrossFit gyms for, you know, inner city kids to um, marketing, you know, companies to coffee. So um, if you want to look at a network, an ecosystem that's not as much around business, but many of you know, Brian Sanders, uh, underground network, um, a lot of shifting in that network right now. Um, but, you know, they they had, you know, I think it, when I was looking at them last eight, a couple hundred micro churches, what they call them, intentional mission. Some of those are businesses as well. So, you know, we're just three years in, but, you know, we're probably going to move more into residential redevelopment because we're seeing the power of having a home in a neighborhood that actually helps bring that neighborhood around. So um, it's not always business per se, but it, it could be any venture, right? That's why our nonprofit purpose statement is to incubate good works. Good work could be a missionary community. It could be a taco shop. Um, could be just about anything. Could be fix and flip houses. Hugh, do you uh, you guys ever run into um, you know the issue of uh, man? This is this is just capitalism, Christianity. Um, you know, this is uh, you know, and you you might be okay with that, but I mean, the labels that come with maybe mixing a little bit of, uh, you know, business and ecclesiology. I know you said earlier that, you know, we have a strong precedent, you know, with monastic communities and the Benedictines and even the Moravians, but given we're in 21st century, you know, North America for, for most of us, uh, and we're really careful about, uh, you know, um, impropriety with, with finances and stuff like that. Like, how do you keep your books in check? I mean, this may be overly practical, but, how, what does oversight look like when it comes to finances? Yeah, we did um, because the building was donated, Daniel, we set up a nonprofit right away. So a lot of people that we're coaching will say set up a nonprofit in addition to your for-profit business stuff. Um, Cause a nonprofit has much more robust accountability structures There's a board of directors. So I'm technically the president of our nonprofit. So I can't sell the building and go take the money. It's, it's built. So there's a lot of accountability with nonprofit. Um, um, obviously business. Yeah. You could just, and I know, I know other people doing what we're doing and they did not set up a nonprofits for profit. So, um, at, at the end of the day, probably in any venture we do, including church, right. Our motivations, uh, can get messed up, but, um, you know, I always go back to the why of what you're doing, capitalism, making money. Um, the only issue with it is the why, if, if your why is we're doing it to provide jobs and uh, create enterprise and, and blessing opportunity to prosper and help a baker start a bakery, then I don't think you're probably going to run into any issues. It's also, you know, when you get into the business realm, you realize there's, you just, it's hard to make money. <laughs> you know, you're not going to make money at a coffee shop. There's no, there really is hardly any margin. You're not going to really make any money in a restaurant. Um, so in most cases, when you start more of a marketplace ecosystem, it's a pretty humbling venture. I suppose there are people out there that make a lot of money, but um, there's a lot of pastors that make a lot of money 
and their why can be as messed up as a local businessman. So I think, you know, because we do what we do in the concept of a community, a, a church, there's accountability at every level. You know, we're not going to incubate a baker until we've all talked about it and said, yeah, let's do it. Um, so Hugh Halter, although I could probably make a lot of decisions, we talk with everybody about what we're doing. So there's built in, you know, it's almost like when we teach missional community, you know, you can just go to church and nobody knows about the porno addiction or the lousy marriage or how bad you parent your kids. When you do actual true missional community, everybody knows everybody <laughs> and you can't fake yeah. stuff out. So I think, uh, in our setting, I just don't see any problem uh, from my wife to uh, our whole team. They would call us on the carpet if we made a selfish move with our money. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. You know, and I think one of the things that, that's coming out, I mean, Daniel had already mentioned the Moravians who Wesley learned a lot from and started the circuit riders. And, you know, there was, there was a huge emphasis on, on lay ministry, lay preaching, um, people, people that, you know, worked their day job and kept their day jobs. But as you mentioned, they ministered, you know, if they were traveling tinkers or if they were brewers or whatever, somehow they were contributing to mission. And when you read the new Testament, you see Paul hooking up with Priscilla and Aquila who were in Rome, Corinth, uh, Ephesus. So these guys set up this tent making empire. I mean, they had a business strategy that Paul used to basically uh, ride mission. In, into all these different cities. And I, I don't think a lot of people think like, how did, how did these 32 people that Paul names as fellow workers, how did they travel to the next city? <laughs> right. They weren't fully like, but then you realize Priscilla and Aquila were at every hub. They're obviously training yeah. church planning missionaries. And that, that just gets me super excited. And when one of the questions that we had come in is about reproducing, because I think that's what that was Paul's drive, right? Was to reproduce himself, reproduce kind of like you're highly apostolic you. So you're always wanting to kind of reproduce yourself and move on. You're more of a catalyst. Um, the question comes in, someone, someone's got their gears turning over here. Is it easier to reproduce smaller churches than larger 100 plus expressions? For sure. It's always anything smaller is easy to reproduce. Um, doesn't mean there's a certain number, um, but with a little bit of size comes some, you know, some stuff, right? Some consolidated resources, some consolidated gifting. So I don't know what the number will be. Um, if COVID stuck around, we're all probably stuck with 40 or less in our backyard. So maybe 40 becomes the new number. Um, it looked like for a while, 10 might be the number. Uh, could you reproduce tens faster than hundreds? For sure, because capacity of, of leadership. You can get a lot more people to do uh, hold together groups of 40 than you can find people that can hold together 5,000. So I think it's built in. Um, but there's still, you know, I mean, if I find house church networks that are as limp-wristed and closed in and myopic as I find in large church networks. So small doesn't necessarily mean it's going to have more vigor, so to speak. Um, to me, what, what makes the whole thing in either size issue would be the mission. What, like, what are you called to do? Like, let's do something. If we're just hanging around, if we call church spiritual conversation and singing and sacraments, I just don't, uh, I don't know if that's going to hold. Um, 
if it's got some mission, we got some, uh, we've all put a little time and money into something together. Um, I think that holds, you know, I mean, there's times I don't want to keep doing what I'm doing. I hold because I'm in it with some other friends and we're, we put a lot into this thing. So we're just not going to let it go. Well, Hugh, uh, I know we're running uh, low on time here, but I'm going to ask you maybe one last question uh, to just kind of maybe appeal to those who are listening right now and they're uh, serving in a pretty traditional church. I mean, you know, and they're faithful and they're really uh, just trying to uh, not just get through the pandemic, but they want to get out of it with a better missional mindset. Um, Talk to the traditional church pastors. Uh, They're not going to, you know, maybe they will quit their jobs and do something else, but I mean, that's not what we're telling them to do. How how can they really capture this time right now to lead their churches in a way that uh, maybe can be a little bit more missional and then maybe have a better usage of some resources, specifically their financial capital? Sure. You know, across the board, Daniel, the one thing you can never lose on is if you'll just really take Ephesians four seriously, that if you are taking money for the gospel, try to only take it for the equipping of what you do with other people. So don't take money to be the, the teaching pastor, take the money to teach people how to navigate scripture with their friends. If, if you have a pastoral gift, a shepherding gift, don't take the money to shepherd as many as you can wedge in every day, take the money to, to equip people to know how to take care of their friends. And if you're an evangelist, don't take the money to lead people or, you know, Take the money to help train people to start neighborhood communities where they can have an evangelistic lifestyle. Um, so just become an equipper. Um, you know, there's no reason to leave your job and leave the money if it's there. But, um, you know, try to move into a lifestyle where you're actually embodying what you're asking other people to do. So um, see if you can carve off, no matter what you're doing, try to carve off 12 hours a week to give to your neighborhood and start your own missionary community. Just get back out there with people. And then any ministry time you're doing, minimize what, what, what you're giving to the Sunday gathering. Uh, we've, I've been coaching a lot of leaders. I found that you can actually commit about a quarter of the time that you commit to the Sunday and it will be exactly the same level of quality. So just stop Absolutely. spending all your time and money there um, and start reinvesting that time and money into equipping people out in the real world. And if you have entrepreneurial passions, you've always wanted to do a business or whatever, I'd say start sneak attacking it on the side, start growing it alongside of what you're doing. And maybe at some point along the way, it gives you the freedom uh, to move into a much more uh, apostolic evangelistic prophetic lifestyle out in the culture. Um, you can still always give your gift to the church. I, I know a, a guy that's running a real estate company, um, making a ton of money. He's still the teaching pastor for a mega church. You can still give your gift back to the body. You don't have to leave that, but, uh, you might enjoy a lot more freedom if you start to build some of this entrepreneurship <laughs> underneath what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely, man. And, you know, Hugh, thanks so much, man, because you are a guy who embodies what you talk about, and that's rare these days. So we greatly appreciate it. Um, Also, too, uh, one of the things that that I've always gotten off you, Hugh, is ministry to you really is about people. It's not about money. It's not about having things. It's not about structures. It's not about – it really is just about the mission. And Guys, one of the things, one of the biggest takeaways, hopefully today, is what Hugh just said about, hey, only focus 
a quarter of the time that you think you have to on the actual church. Because the reality is once you start to really focus on the mission, you start accomplishing mission, that's what Acts is about. That's it. You've cracked it. You've really cracked it. Everything else, once you're empowering people and their gifts and you're <laughs> reaching people the gospel, Holy Spirit kind of takes over. The rest starts to take care of itself. So, the um, church part is actually the easiest part, right? I mean, we'll, all, we'll always know how to church people up. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. You, you just need that elbow grease, man. To just get out there, pray for boldness, like Paul said. Just take some risks, man. Get out there. It's it, it's it's funny that apostolics, you know, they, they take risks for the gospel, and it's not surprising to see them taking risks in the business world as well, because you start living with risk, you know, that, that just becomes second nature. I want to give a special, um, uh, really call out to those of you, you know, uh, the Bose Commons is easily one of the top five coolest things in America. I don't do this for everybody. Yeah. And I expect a mug out of this and out, but I do want to say, if you're kicking around right now and you're somebody, you're like, Hey, I want to invest in a worthy, kingdom venture, I want to ask, I would, like I said, I don't say this to everybody, but I would say invest, get in touch with Hugh, um, check him out. He, it is worth, honestly, one of the coolest missions. You can talk to Alan Hirsch, you can talk to Brian Sanders, who's also one of the coolest things happening in America, but definitely get behind Post Commons. I mean, this is, if nothing else, they've been hit hard, but if nothing else, just to have Hugh talking more about this and to give him breathing room right now to help him train others, it's a worthy cause because the body of Christ needs what Hugh has to demonstrate, not just what he has to say. So I would encourage you, Hugh, where's the best place people can get a hold of you to do that? Uh, they can just go Halter at gmail.com. You can find Post Commons, just postcommons.com. Um, and I do give a free t-shirt for any gift over a million dollars. So <laughs> maybe a mug. You know, and, and I was going to say, he also does fundraising training as well. And you just saw a but golden snippet of it. up like that. <laughs> I have a t-shirt, by the way. I'm not saying I gave a million dollars. But uh, anyways, hey, guys, I really want to thank you for joining us. Uh, final call to action here. Um, we are heading into our fall lineup and we've got um, other shows running. Check in with us every day on the Hub. But more importantly, head on over to multiplication.org and you'll see the registration is open today to sign up for the fall roundtables, which are going to be focused on multiplication and diversity. So we really want to have you join us for that. So check that out. Hugh, thanks for joining us. Daniel, thank you as usual for leading an awesome, uh, not sucky uh, webinar and podcast today. We appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. This fall, Exponential is hosting roundtable events in cities all across America. These half-day gatherings in smaller settings will allow church leaders to prioritize peer-to-peer -peer conversations and receive practical training on how to prepare their church to lead for racial reconciliation. Exponential roundtables will help you continue to pursue church multiplication in these challenging times. Find a roundtable near you this fall by visiting multiplication.org.